we have nothing to be ashamed of. Our products are fantastic. We don't need to make stuff up to sell life insurance. What was the, the main reason why Ohio National failed, knowing that they were like a, a whole life foundational product? Yeah. There is no substitute for life insurance, period. If you want a death benefit to be paid when you die, there is no substitute. How would you illustrate IUL or whole life? Like what's the quote unquote right way to do that? Whole life structured properly over the long run gives you corporate bond returns with better than uni bond tax treatment and money market liquidity. It's the perfect fixed income asset class. Hey guys, it's Caleb Williams with Everyone, welcome back to another amazing episode of the Bear Wolf Podcast. I am here with not just one guest, but two guests, uh, Bobby and Dom. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, what's What's very special about this is obviously you guys have seen many videos with 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 Dom. We kind of laugh. Our videos always do better when Dom Dom's in that. I don't know if the YouTube algorithm just likes your face, Dom, or likes your answers. I don't know, but it's great it's to beard. have you on here. Um, and and Bobby, you're not to like not to pump your tires too much, but like you're kind of the guy when it comes to the expert as it re as it relates to everything life insurance. When, when it comes to the actuarial side, how these products are designed, people bring you in and fly you in. It's kind of it's kind of lame as I'm speaking out loud, but like you're like the life insurance guru that people will fly in, and you're you're kind of the nerd that will break down products and and share with people the different pros and cons of certain things. And so it's a it's a huge, huge honor to have you here. Um, I, we've are big fans of you. We're a part of your newsletter and a part of your amazing community. And it's, it's an honor to have you on our show for the first time and, and hopefully it won't be the last. And so with that, what I'm going to do my very best is I'm going to try to take a step back and let the two gurus around life insurance talk. And, um, if you know anything about me, I probably won't be able to keep my mouth shut for too long, but, uh, I, I'm just, it's an honor to have you on there. And, and whether we talk about IUL and whole life, whether we talk about the retirement aspect in life insurance or just um, geek out about the current events going on right now in the life insurance industry. It's, it's a complete honor to have you on and we're excited to dive in. Thanks for having me. Bobby, so for myself, you have no idea how much of a, an honor this is. And when I say that, uh, the very first time I ever heard you speak, um, I think it was in DC uh, over a year ago and it was a small breakout room. And after I heard you speak, I was literally mind blown. I was like, I've never heard anybody in this space talk about insurance the way that you speak about it. And it was very apparent that you were speaking at it from a very agnostic, non-biased view when you were just like speaking the truth. Because so often in our space, we have people who like will gravitate to one thought or another and like yeah. will like live or die by it and bleed by it. But when you were speaking, it was like this dude is speaking knowledge. He's speaking facts. I was like, if there's somebody in the space that I want to be more like, it's him. And I constantly use you as a, an example of how this industry would be better off if we all spoke this way. Mm. And uh, when I you know, reached out and I asked, hey, would you be able to, to speak uh, you know, on, on the podcast? You were more than happy to do so. You add tons of value to uh, people left and right. And I even shared with uh, one of our advisors on our team that we were doing an interview with you. And he was like, oh. You are speaking with Bobby's. This is the no. Oh, like he was like freaking out just because like it's just. I don't know if you realize it, but um, people that are outside of the insur insurance space obviously don't have context of who you are. Um, but people that are inside the insurance space, especially that are like big insurance nerds, like 
I don't want to say idolize, but like look up to you in like in a tremendous way. And it's it's cool because like you're what you're in your early 30s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like to say early. I'm actually in my late 30s. Tomorrow's my birthday. So 38 oh. tomorrow. Yeah. Amazing. Well, happy uh, early birthday. Uh, that's actually really cool. And thanks for, you know, chopping it up with us one day before. Yeah. Um, but because of it, like I've been super jazzed and excited about this. And I actually watched pretty much all of your content that I possibly could get my hands on uh, beforehand. Um, and one of the videos I actually saw was like over 10 years ago and it you were doing a, a conversation that was actually kind of a, like weirdly around like IUL and whole life, which is kind of crazy that that's been a conversation for this long, oh, yeah. um, which makes sense. But that was over 10 years ago and you were still talking about, um, you know, your, um, the, the review, your product life review that you have, your blog that you have then. So I'm curious, how long have you had that for? And then I would love to hear like what inspired you to start that? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks for all the nice things you guys you guys say. And you're right. My friends have no idea what I do for a living. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a running joke that, I mean, they, some of my friends joke that I'm like a reverse mortgage guy because they don't understand anything about what I do. So anyway, I appreciate what you said. And I, I do like to feel, I, I do feel like I kind of carry the, the banner for all the product nerds in the industry. So the fact that y'all appreciate that means that you guys are product nerds too. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, that newsletter, um, the way it really st started was 2009. I, well, my first job was at NFP national financial partners and I was, you know, first day on the job, they sat me down and I had a degree in, uh, in economics with a kind of a concentration in econometrics. So statistics and uh, applied to economics. And first day I sit down on the job and they run a life insurance illustration. And I remember looking at it and seeing all the numbers. And then I turned to the guy sitting next to me and I said, where did these numbers come from? And he said, oh, well, that's just like an actuarial thing. And I thought, no, nah, there is way more to this. Like these numbers don't just magically appear. And so that was sort of my journey into to product. And so, yeah, I spent my whole career kind of building a business around being a product expert. I've never sold life insurance. I'm actually third generation in the business. And my mom was an agent. My dad is an agent. And my granddad was an agent. Um, but I've never sold insurance. I've always kind of been on the product side of the house. And so 2009, I left to go start my own little consulting company. And people started paying me to speak at conferences. And so I was on the plane all the time and I thought, you know, I really love to write and I have all this downtime on airplanes. Why don't I just start writing, you know, a newsletter? And so I did a blog and um, it got it was a pretty controversial blog, I'd say. And it got like 7000 views. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this is crazy. People actually people actually read this. <laughs> and so I and then I wrote this kind of long white paper about Index2L actually, and sent it around to some friends and that went everywhere in the industry. And I was just blown away. And I think one of the things I realized early on was there are not a lot of people who write about what's going on in the life insurance world. And there's just a kind of a vacuum um, of product oriented folks who are writing and commenting on what's happening in terms of product. Like if you think about consumer reports, there's no consumer reports for life insurance. Um, if you think about you know all, all these CNET, like all this technology review, all these technology review websites, nobody does that for life insurance. And so it sort of dawned on me as I was flying around and killing time that, you know, that we, we need some sort of like review structure for policies. And so I started, you know, the life product review and I put what I thought at the time was an absurdly high price on a subscription. And I thought, well, this is going to make it really easy, right? Nope. No one's going to sign up. And, you know, the money I spent building the website, well, well it'll be the test case. And I'll never forget, I, I put it live and I sent an email to maybe 100 people that I knew and just said, hey, I'm going to be writing this newsletter. Here's the first article. 
and a, and a guy, a friend of mine signed up and I called him and I said, Hey, thank you so much for signing up. Why did you sign up? And he goes, man, anything you want to be a part of, I'm in or anything you're doing, I want to be a part of. And I thought, and I still thank him every time I see him, I see him once a year, every time I see him, I say, thank you, because it was such a huge moment for me. So that was 2012. I started writing that, you know, kind of wrote that through 2012, 2013, 2013, went to go to MetLife, worked at MetLife for four years, left, thought, I don't want to go back to writing again. But honestly, there was so much crazy stuff going on in Index 2 all the time. I mean, that was 2017. All the multiplier stuff had been floating around. Pack Life had rolled out PDX. Like there was a lot to say. And so I restarted the newsletter and I've been doing that, you know, gosh, almost almost five years, actually a little over five years now. And uh, yeah, write, a, write an article every week, three or four thousand words on what's going on. I mean, you guys know your subscribers like it's kind of whatever I want to write about, whatever I want to research. I package up into articles and, and, and send it out. And um, yeah, that's that's the model. It's pretty, pretty, pretty simple. It is it's super fascinating to me because the stuff that I read on the, the blog newsletter is like mind blowing. Like I can't just Google this stuff and find it. Like if I tried to, like there's nowhere else in the world that I can get this information. Yeah. And it's like the best thing I could possibly get to just essentially having you as like my best friend, right? It's like, all right, let me, we let can me be log in. And, yeah, well, I appreciate that. You know, that means a lot. Uh, and well, so I, one, one quick thing on that, that is, that's a unique thing about this industry is you're right. Like you, you can't, Go to chat GPT and put in, tell me all about permanent life insurance. It's not going to give you, it's going to give you gobbledygook. And that is one thing, you know, my friends and other people, again, who don't really know what I do, ask me, like, how do you think of stuff? To, like, where, what are your sources to write about? And it's all original research because to your point, Dom, there's nothing else out there. So how do I write articles? I read statutory reports. I run illustrations. I read earnings reports for stock companies. And, and I also have a, I have a product development company where we you know get brought in to a lot of insurance companies to help them think about how they're building products. And, so, and we actually do outsource product development work on the annuity side. So some companies literally outsource all their annuity product development work to us. And a lot of this stuff is like, I'm just in a project somewhere else and I see something and then I go research and write an article about it. And so, uh, and then my phone rings, you know, I get, I get calls every week from clients, people who find me on the internet, clients, attorneys, you know, all sorts of stuff who say, hey, have you heard about X, Y, Z? And that kind of kicks me off on a research thing. So it is weird that in this industry, there's not a reliable news source. There's not publications to read. There's not, there's really, you kind of have to do it on your own. And I've found that with, I wish there was other people to read that I could really learn a lot about what I'm writing about from them too. But unfortunately, I'm the only one who writes about this. And that's just, it, it totally blows my mind that I'm the only one. Like why that should not be the case. There should be three other people out there doing this, but they're not. And it's it's always been weird to me that that's the case. I, I think the the biggest thing is is people don't know how. Like for me and like we have a couple other guys on the team that are like big into the insurance like nerd space of like how do these products work and function. And I instantly think like, well, where do I go? Like what do I do? Like how do I research this? I actually just don't know. All of those things that you just said about the things that you research from statute Harry, like looking at reports, like where do I go to look at that stuff? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like you have done a very good job of knowing where to go, gathering that information, doing the research and bringing it to the public. And so like, we're grateful for that. And uh, I know I, I feel kind of bad, like from an unselfish standpoint, you're like, where do I get my information? How do I get my cut filled up? You know, because I think we all need that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I feel like there's people that have been in this space for a very, very long time, either like that work for insurance companies or that are just really smart people. Uh, if there was like a way to just be able to, and get some of the information they had and like figure out because the other thing is too is 
you're younger, right? The other thing is when it comes to older people that have been in the space for a while, they're not willing to, you know, write or YouTube or like create content essentially around it, right? They're just like a wealth of knowledge. So because you have like best of both worlds, you actually are our age, you know, our generation, but you are willing to do the hard work. You really are the only person that's like on this planet that is at a space that it makes sense or that can do it. So I think for you, you're going to leave a crazy legacy. And um, I'm just grateful that I get to consume your information well, along thanks. the way. I, I will say, I mean, uh, there is a fair bit of stuff that I get from older folks. I'll give you an example. I was writing an article about UL in the 1980s and sort of this question of, you know, when will, when, as, in, as interest rates go up, when will companies switch to new money? crediting. And, um, you know, I was looking at the charts and I was seeing th this probably happened in the 1980s. And um, my granddad, unfortunately, has dementia. Otherwise, I call him and ask him because he's been selling insurance. He was selling insurance, you know, from 1962 until probably 2012 or so. Um, couldn't call him, but I did call one of his friends who is the chief actuary at General American. And I had his phone number from way back when. And I called him and I said, Ben, I, tell me about what happened in the 1980s. And he spent, you know, two hours on the phone with me talking through, oh, this is exactly what happened. And this company did this. And here's why they did it. And it was just incredibly helpful for me writing that article. So I will say that that's, I don't have stuff to read, but man, there are so many smart people in this business. There's so many experienced in this people in this business. They're not on social media. They're not doing YouTube videos. They're not writing articles, but they will take my phone call. And that is, I have so many like phone a friend relationships that I'm so thankful for. And I mean, even today, I was, I've got an article coming out in two weeks about final expense. What, what I would never normally write about, but it's kind of, as you guys probably know, it's kind of so this weird, bizarre little niche in the market. And I happened to be on the phone with a friend of mine who was the, uh, who was a pretty senior guy at a final expense company for some, for another project I'm working on. I just said, Hey, can I bend your ear for 10 minutes? And we spent 15 minutes talking about, you know, the final expense market. Um, and I'm so thankful for guys like that. So, yeah, so I try to kind of grab all that and put it into a digestible format so everybody else can read and get the benefit of these relationships that I have and the stuff that I'm willing to go research. And um, yeah, it's just amazing how many people will take time out of their day to pick up my call and answer weird questions. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. I love it. Uh, from a, a blog perspective and the things that you created, it'll obviously live on forever. And the information that we get is like super in depth and I and everybody I've ever talked to loves it. I get people all the time and sending me articles from your stuff. I'm like, yeah, I've read it, but like people are always like, "Have you read this? Have you read that?" I'm like, "It's Bobby's the man." Like, yeah, of course. Like, you should be reading that stuff. Uh, I'm curious from you though. Have you ever considered just like stepping out of just the the blog and writing and like actually stepping more into like the social space and YouTube channel and things like that? Because even when I tried to like research you, the only thing I could really find was like one or two videos. But then yeah. all of the other stuff I could get was happened to be from you know your blog in itself. You know, Dom, I don't have a good answer to this question. I I'll just say this. I'm a bad millennial. Like I, I, I'm not the only social media I'm on is LinkedIn. I, I, I guess I have a Facebook page probably somewhere. I never, I never go on like it. I don't use Twitter. I don't use, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not on Instagram. I, I'm not on TikTok. Like I just kind of don't. And, and look, I, so part of that is just because I, I think I'm just kind of, I, I don't know why it just hasn't ever been a thing for me, but also early on in my career, you know, I was pretty public. And there's good and bad parts about that. And there was some, I, I kind of picked up early on that, um, that I didn't want to be, I didn't want to, how do I say this? I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable with some of the things I said being thrown around in the public to everybody, because a lot of what I found is a lot of people take something I said out of context. 
And, you know, if you really want to understand what I'm saying, you have to read the whole article. Like that's, that's, mm. I think in 3000 words, I'm not a great soundbite person. I can be, if I want to be on various particular topics. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that today when we're talking about IUL and whole life, like you can distill it down to a sentence, but I've, I've found for me, I think in like two to 3000 word increments. And so that's why I do it in the blog because I need to get the thought out and writing is part of how I get the thought out. And so for me, blogging is the easiest, most natural approach to get the level of information that I create out there. I just don't feel as comfortable doing videos. I've tried. I, I just, I don't feel like I'm good. I'm as good with my words. I feel like some of this stuff's pretty technical and you got to get it right. And I rewrite articles a couple times to make sure that everything does what it's supposed to do. And when you're doing a YouTube, you know, on something really technical like that, it's, it's like a video. It's hard to make sure that that works. And then on social, yeah, I mean, I'll do a little bit of stuff on LinkedIn, but I, I feel like I feel like I'm kind of a word of mouth guy. Like if you know who I am, you're going to come find me. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I don't really do a lot of self-promotion. I don't really do any self-promotion. I'm a, I'm a terrible marketer. I'm a terrible millennial. I'm, I'm, I, my business probably could be bigger than it is, but I just haven't ever tried to make it any bigger. I just kind of do what I do. And the fact that anybody pays me to do it is still like mind boggling to me. And so, so that's, I mean, that's the. Yeah, yeah, that's the okay. answer. I wish I had a better one, but that that is the answer. No, it's it's a good answer. And usually we kind of have some of this dialogue like later on after the interview, like of like the super technical stuff. But I'm actually like very curious at this point of kind of your, your mission and like kind of the why you do what you do. Like, I know you're the only person that's doing it. And but like, what is like, why do you get fulfillment from? Is it because mm-hmm. there's so much information in the space? Or like, why do you like wake up every day and like, you know, I want to keep this blog going? Man, we're getting good stuff here. Um, I, nobody really asked me that question, so I'm glad you did. I I feel to some degree, well, first of all, I feel curiosity about this. So in general, I tend to kind of glom onto a topic and sink my teeth in, and I really want to feel like I fully understand it. So to, let me give you an example of that. So a few years ago, maybe like almost 10 years ago now, I happened to be looking, I forget what I was looking at, but I looked at something about South Africa. I have no connection to South Africa. I'm like a quarter Swedish and, and I'm a mutt otherwise, you know, like, so I, if I was going to be interested in the country, maybe Sweden, who knows, but I saw something about South Africa and I thought I, it was, it piqued my curiosity. Well, that started a year long process of me reading 62 books on South Africa, watching every video I could possibly find on South Africa. It turns out we actually had a great South African food shop here. So I'd go hang around the South African food shop and talk to the South Africans there about like, I mean, just I went totally headlong into it because I wanted to kind of figure it out. I've done that with Russian history. I've done that with like, I feel like there's constantly sort of a a thing I'm reading a lot about or I'm interested in. And I've just, I find life insurance and annuities like endlessly fascinating. And so for me, it's every week I wake up and I say, what am I going to write about this week? And the answer is whatever I'm interested in, whatever I want to know, whatever I want to better understand. And so some of it is just, honestly, it's just selfish curiosity. Like, mm. I, I think this stuff is interesting and I write about it. And again, the fact that anyone pays me to, pays to read what I write is amazing to me because I'm just, I'm just working out my curiosity. That's part of it. I think the other bigger part, and, and I mean, you guys read my stuff, like you, you pick up on a lot of this. I, I love our industry. I love the, the, the nobility of what we do. I love the uniqueness of what we do. Um, I love the fact that we're a little bit, we're a little bit avant-garde, we're a little bit against the grain. So a lot of financial advisors at Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch would never even think about life insurance and annuities. And I like things that sort of challenge the norms. And so I think talking about the benefits of our products are, are necessary, a little bit contrarian. And I like to be a contrarian. I like, I like contrarian stuff. So there's a natural feel, um, 
you know, for that. But there's also, as a part of industry, stuff that goes on that should not happen and things that are just flat out wrong and mischaracterizations, mischaracterizations of our products that are so severe that they actually harm people. And, you know, I've seen since like the day that I got in this industry, the good of what we do and the damage that is caused when our products are used inappropriately. I mean, you got to remember, I got it in 2007 at the peak of Stoli. So watching all that go down as a you know 23 year old, 24 year old, whatever it was, kind of going, oh man, what I thought what we were doing was good, and and a lot there was a lot of good, but there was a lot of kind of bad and 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 harm being caused here. You know, then IUL hit this, hits the scene and immediately it's like, I mean, I'm literally two weeks on the job and someone's showing me a, an AIG elite global illustration with a 10.28% crediting rate. And I'm going, I don't know anything. I know nothing, but I know that is BS. Like that makes no sense. And so I, and then, you know, so then I spend my entire career kind of fighting against ridiculous IUL illustrations. And I view that as a call. Like I view that as my role in the industry that's that's how I've taken it is like this is this is wrong. This is not realistic. Um, this is going to cause harm. And so not only am I curious in it, but I also feel called to do something about it. This, the stuff that is not good. And um, and I'm not a partisan about that. Right. Like and I don't about, I don't think by the way, there's a lot of things in the industry that are amoral. OK, there are a lot of things where morality is not involved, but there are pieces where morality is involved and misrepresentation is part of that. And it's not about IUL. There are misrepresentations and misrepresentations in whole life and in VUL and in guaranteed UL. And I hate all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of view it as like, yeah, I get it. I, I, I fight that. And I'm and I'm happy to stick my neck out on a line. And by the way, lose a corporate client to say the truth because that's the right thing to do. And again, I feel kind of called to that. So, so yeah, it's kind of this call and curiosity that's just kind of kept me going for you know 15 years. Bobby, um, there's two things that I want to say is one, here at Better Wealth, we have a mission where we really want to help people live an intentional life. And you really embody that. Uh, you know, specifically when you said you're doing this selfishly is in like you just love it. And you have the choice to do so and you're doing it. And I absolutely love that. <laughs> Secondly, I this is why I get inspired by you. Like I truly do. Like when I make content and I'm commenting on other people's stuff and I'm trying to like pour into people and other advisors, like I constantly have you in my mind when I'm mm-hmm. speaking to people. Because that right there is truly uh, something that I feel like I want to help try to leave a legacy in the insurance space is to get people to speak better about the products and like yeah. really be able to speak the truth on what's really going on. Because so often, you know, for Caleb and I, like we are in this crazy millennial space where we are on social media and we're deep into it. And we constantly see people speaking misinformation and sharing over over the top marketing that's lies and misinformation. And, and then people sign up for their insurance product and they realized that what they got wasn't what they yeah. thought they were getting. Yeah. And it does cause a lot of problems, um, not for that person, for that person, but also for the industry as a whole, because then products get bad raps. The industry gets a bad rap. You know, you start looking at the scale of trustworthy industries and like financial industries at the very, very bottom and, you know, rightfully so. And so for you to stick your neck on the line, um, for the industry and be willing to lose a corporate, you know, you know customer, like to me, that's exactly why, uh, I love you so much and why everybody does love you. And like, I truly think that you're going to leave a legacy that's going to impact many people for generations because um, you're you're pouring into people without even realizing it by doing the right thing and, you know, sharing this information. So I just want to say thank you for that, man. Like, it truly does mean a lot. Well, I want to say thank you because I've been really worried about what's going on with t- in TikTok and in social media with how these products are being portrayed. 
And I have thought many times, who is going to be the countervailing force here? Like we need people in here. And by the way, it's not me because what you're doing is way harder than what I do. You're in hand to hand combat and I'm like throwing missiles, you know? And so thank you for doing what you do, because I really do think this whole social media thing is the next big kind of battleground. And I agree. I, look, I, again, I'm not on TikTok. I'm not, I'm, but I see the videos. People send me the videos and my jaw drops at how people are talking about life insurance. And, and look, again, I love the product. Our products do amazing things, but they are not what these people are saying. They're not riskless investments where you earn market plus returns, right? They are not huge income streams for life on a guaranteed basis. Like there's so many, there's, so anyway, I'll, let me pass well, it back to you and say, I thank you guys for fighting that because it's just that sort of stuff is what is what actually is probably going to cause the biggest problem to our industry because that's, it's prolific, it's everywhere. And there's going to be a lot of customer complaints. And to your point, that affects the industry as a whole. And um, so kudos to you guys for fighting that on social media. That's harder than what I do. Well, and, and on that topic, what are a couple things that you're like the do nots? Because we, we see things from infinite banking that are yeah. just like, you, people are shocked that they even are buying life insurance. They're like, yeah. they like they, the way that it's being sold, the aggressive IUL, there's people doing pseudo premium finance to people oh. that are putting like 300 or $400 into IUL and by calling it special names. Um, and it's, it is, it is crazy. Um, even we, we've go really clear that if you're selling life insurance for tax free cash flow in the future, it's like, I think that can be manipulated on whole life and IUL. Uh, of course. So, so it's like, where do we even begin? But like, when you look at the history, um, like, can you give us a little bit of like looking back some of the mistakes people have made and then, and where we are today, what are the things that we should be careful of? Or if you're a consumer or, or person in this space, what do you, what should you be careful of to say? And to not say from a standpoint of doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look back, uh, you know, over the history of our products, in my, in my view, there's really kind of two. And by the way, this goes back to the 1800s. So this is not like since 1980 when Universal Life came on the scene. This is literally the, the best book I've ever read on life insurance. It's called The Story of Life Insurance by Burton Hendrick. And phenomenal read. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. So it's it's a it's a great read. And um it was written in 1905 about the shenanigans going on in life insurance in the 1800s. And what was happening in the 1800s is the same thing that happened in, in, in the last century and is the same thing happening now. And, and basically, this, it's always the same. It's literally always the same two things. It is insurance being sold as an investment. That's number one. So and to your point, you brought up a really good point. People in the infinite banking side of the world don't even want to call it life insurance. And I've seen these videos of these of these people promoting this and they're to your point, they describe what it is and they never use the word insurance. Right. And then at the very end, they'll go, oh, and this is life insurance or, oh, this is it's like, well, OK, so so they're talking about so promotion as an investment, number one. Um, and, and just even thinking about the product that way. Number one, number two is then you back that up with uh, absurd illustrations, absurd promises of return that are completely realist, uh, unrealistic and built on assumptions that no one, if they knew the assumptions, no one would buy into what was being shown. Now, again, in the 1800s, this was happening with tontine dividends. So, which you can go look up, it's a crazy story, right? But we had tontine dividends, we had semi-tontine dividends, then we had vanishing premium and whole life. And then you get into UL, which, I mean, again, if you think about UL, people were buying 14% illustrated rates on UL and thinking that that was like in some way guaranteed or comparable to whole life, and it wasn't. And then 
you know, then we go into VUL and then we go into guaranteed UL, which really, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a guaranteed UL product. I love guaranteed UL products, but when you, when you go to a, you know, a person in California working in a field and you falsify an application and have them buy $10 million of life insurance, that's a problem. And have an investor buy the policy and that was stolen, right? So that, that was all during that period of time. And then we've had IUL really kind of ripping and since 2009. And again, I mean, so much of what IUL is, is in, term, in terms of promotion is this is an investment, right? No risk with market-based upside and ridiculous looking illustrations. And so that, that, those two things just kind of, they change form, but they're constant. And again, even going back to the 1800s. So those, those are the big no-nos to me. Like you talk about it strictly in terms of an investment is a, is, is a problem kind of no matter what. And then if you go and back that up with some sort of absurd illustration that shows values that are unrealistic for the long run, and then you put those two things together and you have a really toxic mix. And um, yeah, we've been fighting that off for, I don't know, 150 years or so. So, so for myself, I'm just like you, and I, I try to be as agnostic as possible when it comes to products, right? The product just is, and this is how it function works. And essentially, does this product solve the problem that you're trying to solve at the yep. end of the day? And the two things that you mentioned with the question that Caleb asked was, you know, being sold as an investment and then over-fabricated illustrations. And, uh, you know, that happens quite often in regards to the IUL space. And Caleb and I have been in the industry now for, let's say, close to six years. So we haven't even been around long enough since, like, to see, like, the journey of IUL and, like, how this is essentially transformed. We obviously hear things. I saw your presentation at a One America event where you talked about, like, here's how the illustration was presented. And then here's what was actually going on. There was like a $3 million difference in cash value. Yeah, right. And it was like talking about it's supposed to be like risk management expectations and stuff like that. And it's like, this, this wasn't that, right? So I'm curious from your perspective, like how has the journey been, let's say over the last 15 years or so, like in the IUL, like where did it start? Where is, did it transform to? Like, where is it at today? You know, you could talk about AG49, you know, AMB, yeah. the amendments as well, if you'd like to, to kind of give a, a a history of it over the last 15 years. Yeah, I'll give you the quick, I'll give you the quick story because I think, and this is oversimplified. So there are always, you know, little pockets and exceptions to this. Um, but like you, I'm, I'm agnostic on products. So one of the questions I get all the time is what's the best product? There is no best product. Okay. Products aren't good or bad. Products are not moral or amoral. They either do what they're supposed to do or they don't do what they're supposed to do. And so it's like, so now you can have aggressive illustrations that are completely unrealistic. That's a problem, but that's separate from the product, right? Product does what it's supposed mm -hmm. to do. So when you think back to the original concept behind IUL, what it's supposed to do is that it's a universal life product where instead of crediting fixed interest to the policyholder, you go out and buy options and give them index link returns. It's a great idea. I mean, there is nothing wrong with that idea. And the idea is on universal life chassis, from a crediting standpoint, you get downside protection with index linked upside potential. It's a great story. And I think early on for, for IUL, that was the dominant story. So if you think back to like Ameris, Indie Life, even Aviva, a lot of these companies were in the space early on, really pitched IUL as, think about it as an alternative asset class, downside protection, upside potential in a life insurance wrapper. And they were really pitching it as UL, but with index crediting, it wasn't, it wasn't magical. I think that started to change in 20, 2006. So 2006, a couple of the new companies come in the space with really aggressive illustrations. Um, Securian was one, AIG was another one. By the way, AIG had been in for years and had not been super aggressive on illustrations, but then they got in in 2006 with Elite Global, 10, you know, 10 plus percent illustrated rates. Penn Mutual got in right around then, really high illustrated rates. And suddenly the sales 
and the industry started to shift towards the more aggressively illustrated products. So to me, that really kind of kicked off the illustration war, which is really what we've been in ever since. And, you know, it used to be that, okay, what's a good IUL product? Well, a good IUL product is one that offers reasonably high upside potential with reasonable policy charges, does what it's supposed to do from a trustworthy company. After these products came out, it shifted to what's a good IUL? Well, it's the one that illustrates the best. And what carriers realized was there was effectively no rule for how you illustrate IUL. So that's where AG49 came in to try to standardize that. There was a huge loophole in the in the regulation that everybody knew. I mean, everybody knew it to the point where I was in Phoenix at the day because I helped draft that regulation. We were in Phoenix and we were clinking beers at the bar after we got AG49 approved. And, <laughs> you know, we were sitting around IUL companies and I was working for MetLife at the time, right? IUL companies and non-IUL companies. And I remember saying something effective like, hey, you guys know there's a huge loophole here. Like we all agree on that and you guys aren't going to do anything, right? And they're like, oh, no, we'll ne we won't take advantage of it. We don't want to go through this again, blah, 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 blah. Well, lo and behold, right, PacLife comes out with PacLife PDX. We get the multiplier wars. AG49A comes to stop the multiplier wars. AG49A was incomplete because it didn't address these engineered indexes that had been, you know, become very popular on the annuity side and kind of percolated over to the life insurance side. So then we had a couple of years where those indexes were the best illustrating thing out there. Then we got AG49A revision, which I call AG49B because it's a mouthful otherwise, right? So AG49B comes along and that was implemented just in May. And already we're seeing companies figure out how to arbitrage AG49B and illustrate you know, rates that are way higher than what they should. So, it, so, and the question is why? Well, it's not because this stuff is better for customers. It's because it illustrates better. And again, you got to separate this illustration from the product. And so back in the old days of IUL, to me, it was all about the product. What's the what's the functional, mechanical, to your point, Dom, like not right or wrong, just mechanically, what does this product do and, and how does it work? And that was the selling point. And as it shifted to illustrations, it's just been chasing whatever illustrates the best, regardless of what the best thing is for the client, regardless of what the best long-term performance will look like. And I, you know, the biggest way we see that is that after AG49A, the strategies that companies were using to illustrate the best under any reasonable expectation actually will illustrate worse than a normal IUL product. And yet they, I'm sorry, will actually perform the worst, but they actually illustrate the best. So companies were mm. pitching strategies that they knew were going to underperform. Wow. But because they illustrated better, they set them as a default, they benchmarked off of them, and they pushed that strategy. It was shameless. And I think that was when the truth came out, right? Anybody who's watching knew in that moment that it was never about actual policyholder experience. It was always about illustrated performance. And that is a problem. You know, and again, that's nothing on the product. I like index two. I have no problem with index two all as a product. I have a problem with the way it's illustrated. And that was like the moment when everyone should have known, oh, the illustrations are totally bonk, right? You can't pay attention to them at all because all this is just one huge game. And so that's been the history of the product, really. When I hear you speak about it, it gives me the chills and not give me the chills in the right way. It, like it actually makes me sick to know like that's where we're at as an insurance industry. Yeah. And like where it's not just at a, a uh, an agent standpoint, it's actually operating at like these billion dollar companies are, are knowing what they're doing and it's it's working out this way. So from you, from your perspective, from all the things you've seen over the, the, the history and the time and these amendments getting put into place, what do you think is the solution to helping solve this problem? I think, and this kind of goes to TikTok stuff too, and infinite banking, even to some degree, I, I think the industry is um, has a fatal addiction to illustrations. 
And I think that's true, by the way, on the whole life side, too. I mean, you, you know, whole, whole life illustrations are no more or less accurate fundamentally than IUL illustrations. They're all going to be dead wrong. Uh, they're all going to be wrong. The only difference is that with, with whole life, it's defensible because they use today's current dividend and illustrate it out. With IUL, it's this funky look back thing that nobody really, you know, thinks is actually very reasonable, but we use it anyway. And so, and so, but all of that comes back to the fundamental problem, which is people are, people are selling off of illustrations and that's never what illustrations were intended to, to that's never how they were intended to be used. And the, the best thing I've ever read on this was actually a, 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 an actuarial task force in the late 1990s put together to kind of evaluate the state of illustrations. And what they basically said was there are two, two ways people use illustrations. Type A is that they use the illustration to explain how the product works. Type B is that they use the illustration to project future values going forward. And this actual task force was unambiguous. You can read the report. It's, it is excruciating in how it dismantles type B usage, the projection usage. And they literally say in there, actuary should oppose the myth that illustrations are projections. And we should support illustrations that are used for explanatory purposes. And I think the irony is that the way illustrations are used today is that they don't explain the product at all. They're meant only to be shown as projections. And like, think about, you know, you guys see IUL illustrations all the time. If you want to understand how an IUL policy works, you should see the policy charge page. That tells you what's actually going on behind the scenes. Almost nobody includes the policy charge page in the actual illustration, right? They just show the values, which means you literally can't use it to explain how the policy works. It's only there for projection purposes. That is dead wrong. That's not the way to use illustrations. And unfortunately, we're hooked on this. The industry is, is, is on the drug. And the only way off is cold turkey. And I would say illustrations have to fundamentally change um, to be explanatory documents, explanatory documents, not pro not projections or uses projections in order for us to get back to selling insurance for what it is, not for what we think, how we think it's going to perform. Again, avoiding this investment thought process, you have to change illustrations. So I think in the long run, we got to change illustrations. And that, and by the way, I probably more than ever, I think that actually may happen. So the regulators have actually said we're open to kind of opening up the illustration model regulation and see if we can make some changes given how bad things have gotten in indexed UL. So my expectation is that over the next few years, it's going to take some, well, a long time, but over the next 10 years, five years, however long, we're going to see some substantial changes to illustrations to hopefully wean the industry off of this improper use of life insurance. Um, to your point, like, how do you fix it? I, I think everybody recognizes the problem and, and fixing it. There, there is an avenue, which is going to take a lot of time to get it done. Do you think there'll be an, an illustration regulation to whole life as well? Or do you think that the, it'll only be to the IUL space? Yeah, so I think stage one is to kind of bring IUL back into line with other fixed life insurance products. And then I think stage two is a broader exploration of how should we be illustrating even things like whole life? And um, yeah, so I do think, I do think, um, I do think whole life will get, will get pulled in. But I think stage one is to get IUL back in line with the rest of the fixed life insurance products out there. How would you how would you illustrate IUL or whole life? Like, what's the quote unquote right way to do that? And then, is there a word like when do you prefer IUL over whole life? Because the way that we position whole life is number one, we we're very clear that it's not an investment, and and we never show like income coming out of policies, but we do show the illustration mainly for the first couple yeah. of years so that people understand because we overfund the policies pretty aggressively, but it's not. By selling whole life in de by default, you're not winning any awards from the illustration wise because you yeah, can right. make it look 
way better in different products. But we, I would like to say that we try to educate from a standpoint of like base and PUA and term, like, and but from an illustration standpoint, it's clear to see that. Yeah. How would you, number one, how would you, what's the difference between IUL and whole life? And then how would you illustrate it if you, if we really had the best interests of our clients and we wanted to explain how the product works while still like life insurance is beneficial. It's yeah, amazing yeah. for people's portfolios and, and it can help protect them. So how do you, how do you still position life insurance as an amazing asset without going overboard? I know I asked like 15 questions. No, 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 that, no. So you can just run with it. No, it's perfect. The way you did it, Caleb, the way you described it was dead on, right? We look at the first few years, we explain how it works. We use the illustration to show, okay, we're doing paid up ads or we're doing a term blend or like that is how you're supposed to look at an illustration. The fact that you don't illustrate income coming out. I mean, I think the number one problem with whole life illustrations is whenever you illustrate income, mm. period. And, and so the fact that you guys don't do that, you're avoiding 95% of the problems that I see in, in whole life. So I'd say... Whole life, honestly, whole life's tricky. I don't have a good, beyond what you just said, I don't have a good, I don't have a, I don't have a good fix for whole life other than like, if everyone just did what you did, we would not even have to discuss it. But on, on UL to me, it's actually a pretty simple story, which is these are flexible premium products versus fixed premium on whole life, right? So with whole life, you got to have an illustration because you got to see fixed cap, tabular cash values so you can see how things materialize over time. With UL, you know, really, you're not buying, you're not buying a fixed premium product, you're buying a flexible premium product. What determines your long-term performance is the interaction of premium and policy charges. So the most important piece of the puzzle is actually the policy charge schedule, which is the thing that doesn't even make it into the illustration for most companies. So what I'd say is for any UL, not just IUL, but any UL, VUL, IUL, whatever iteration people come up with next, you illustrate the policy charges. That's where you start. And then you show a limited view, 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, whatever the number is, of what the how those charges interact with the premiums that you choose to pay. And so think of it as like a limited illustration where policy charges are actually the focus, not the illustrated long-term performance of the contract. And I, I think I think if you did that, you'd avoid, you explain how the policy works, which is really important. And you'd avoid a lot of the games being played in long-term illustrated performance. I, the games in illustrations 99 times out of 100 all happen after the 20th year. So to the extent we can shorten illustrations up, you're going to avoid a lot of the abuses. I mean, you guys see it when you see like illustrated income coming out of products. You know, what happens at age 110 impacts the illustrated income stream and nobody's living to age 110. That That's pure illustration gimmickry. So I think I think that's how we got to think about it. But I will say this again, when and if this happens, you know, it's going to be a bloodbath between big insurance companies on how to deal with this question. And it's going to be really interesting to see where it falls out. And I know you know the person that we're talking about of someone who's like illustrating from very early on in the policy to take arbitrage to fund more. <laughs> like it's insane. And then and then increasing right. that out into income. It's like not only is this person not going to be in the industry, but like there could be some massive problems with the people that are signing up for this and they don't even know any better. Right. Uh, it is kind of mind boggling that this this person and there's many people out there that are just very, very aggressive um, and it's just, it's sad because it might, they might not know any better, but it, it's sad to like find the loophole to make it look amazing yeah. knowing that like, it's just, there's no shot that that's actually going to happen. So we do this another, I'm glad you brought this up. Illustrations don't show any probability of success, right? Every illustration that works, works, looks like it works a hundred percent. So 
people like that who you're talking about, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say he has no idea how risky this stuff is that he's selling. And why would he? It doesn't say on the illustration, hey, there's no chance of this working. It's a really good point. And I think that's part of the discussion too, is on future illustrations, how do we probability weight these outcomes? Yep. How do we expose the assumptions that lead to this? Because I think if anybody knew what he was assuming on those illustrations, they would know that there's, and I've actually run some numbers on his deals, there's a 0% chance of that working. Zero. Wow. Yeah, because of the volatility. Think about it. You 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 borrow money to pay premiums and then you start taking uh, income out. You have no margin for error. One wow. year of a zero and your policy lapses. Yeah. So every single one of those policies will face a challenge that probably will lapse it going forward. Every single one. And yet that does not show up in the illustration. Also, I can't blame him. In some ways, I can't blame him yeah. and other people who are doing that because they don't know because the insurance companies yeah. don't. It's not in the illustration. Well, I, I got one more question, Dom, and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, the one of one of our mutual friends, he talks, he's really big on IUL, like against IUL. And he talks about like companies can change the rules essentially at any time. They can change levers, they can change, they can say they can publish a cap this year, but on past products, the cap can be lower. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. the big thing of when you look back on whole life versus IUL is is Whole life is its own black box. There's their own issues there. I think we can all agree, but there's it's harder to manipulate an illustration. It's it, from a standpoint of that. When it comes to IUL, is that true? Like, is a big risk just companies twenty years from now just saying, you know what, we made a mistake, and we're just gonna force you to cash out your policy or, or transfer? Like, is that is that a yeah. problem, or is that over? And that is that a whole life person pitching? that whole life is better. And so it's like, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. Like, yeah, yeah. What's the likelihood of this happening? Because we've seen some whole life carriers become demutualized. And so it oh, really absolutely. like puts a bad taste in your mouth to like, if they'll do that, what, what's keeping some of these IUL companies from just kind of like divorcing themselves from the product? Yeah, great question. Um, the short answer is, yeah, of course that's possible. But you used a different word, which is what's the probability of that happening? I think we're going to see some isolated events where it does happen from companies that shut down new business, companies that get acquired, companies that get sent into runoff. Do I think that's the biggest risk in IUL? No. And, and I'll just say in working with companies that sell IUL and in working with a lot of insurance companies, this, this is going to sound weird based on everything else I've said, but the people managing things like that, um, they, they actually want to do the right thing generally. On the illustrations, they're willing to play games. And it's this weird dichotomy of they generally make the right decisions on how they manage the block of business, but they generally are also willing to engage in all sorts of crazy stuff in the illustration. And I think there's a reason why. So when you think about the rate setting process for an indexed UL, there's an actuary who really deeply understands that product and understands how profitability materializes into that product. And they're really going to try to do their best to make a decision about how to set rates that benefits the policyholder while keeping the shareholders happy. Like that, that's how actuaries are wired. Illustrations are fuzzy math. Illustrations don't cost them anything. Illustrations don't hurt rates of return. Illustrations are kind of a gray area. And so I know actuaries who will do ridiculous stuff on illustrations and be fine with it, and yet do a fantastic job of being great to the policyholder on actual enforced block treatment. And so my view is there's like, there's guardians at these companies who, who try to make sure that rates are set appropriately. Is it possible they set unfair rates? Absolutely. Will it happen in some situations? Yes. Is it the number one boogeyman I would bring up to a client and talking about index UL? No. 
I would say, what is the base illustrated rate that you're using, assuming the cap is fair? Because to your point, I mean, we've seen whole life companies crush their dividends. There are non-guaranteed elements in whole life too. It is possible that a whole life company could make those same decisions. Um, it's less likely, <laughs> but it is possible. And so I, I don't view that as a major issue with IUL. I view the major issue with IUL as not the cap. It's how the cap is converted into an illustrated rate and the assumptions used for that. That to me is the bigger issue. We've talked, uh, we've talked a lot about essentially the company's like management, book of business blocks, uh, how they essentially, you know, choose to, you know, um, actuarially do one product over another. Um, and we've seen a, companies as of late not essentially be so uh, good at essentially managing that side of things. One company specifically is Ohio National. I don't want to take spend too much time on it. I, I do just want to just touch briefly around it. Um, the question I have for you is what was the the main reason why Ohio National failed, knowing that they were like a, a whole life foundational product? Yeah. And then secondarily, um, I'll go ahead and answer that. And I have a follow-up question that will lead into that too. So let, let me ask you that question first. Like fundamentally, why did Ohio National essentially fail in their business model and have to be mutualized? Yeah, they, whether they failed or not, I think is an open question. I'll say they, they, they had, they decided they wanted to be acquired and it probably needed to be acquired in order to keep their ratings and keep the new business franchise going. So it made sense for them to be acquired, but that was because their back was against the wall. And, you know, again, I'll, I don't want to I don't want to talk too much on this because there's a lot of different angles here. But I'll just say this. I think I think people who sold Ohio National Whole Life were really confused because there was nothing wrong with the products. Um, there was actually a time where Ohio National had, you know, kind of the cheapest, best illustrating whole life out there, which, by the way, is kind of a dangerous combination. Right. Like You don't cheapest and best illustrating can't exist forever in whole life. So there was probably they were they were probably aggressively illustrating that contract. But that's in the grand scheme of, you know, problems at insurance companies. That's a pretty that's a pretty minor one. The issue with Ohio National was that they sold too many variable annuities with living benefits, period. And by the way, they didn't sell it through the same people that were selling their whole life. They sold it through their institutional channels. So people selling whole life. I, I'm not even sure they really knew the scale of the issue on the VA side. And ultimately, that's what that's what was the core underlying issue was they had issues with that VA block. They had reinsured it to. The Grand Caymans, uh, the Grand Cayman, um, and you know they they needed more capital, and that's what Constellation stepped in and gave them. And so now <laughs> that's a whole other saga. But yeah, but yeah. I mean, no, that, yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great answer. You know, which I'm, I've always wondered this too is why did you know they've demutualized right? And so you've seen plenty of other companies in the past demutualize, and they go from a a mutual carry to a stock company, essentially what it is. And they no longer provide a dividend. But this one scenario is like they demutualize, but still are providing a dividend. Correct. Obviously, it's a very watered down dividend. So like, why why was that the case? Like, why do they still provide a dividend if they have demutualized? Yeah, good question. So so demutualization, there's actually a two-step demutualization process for, for Ohio National. They demutualized years ago when they became a mutual holding company. So it used to be that Ohio National life insurance company was actually a mutual company and they paid actual participating dividends to that block. Then Ohio National became a stock company owned by a mutual holding company. Pack Life is organized this way. One America is organized this way. Securian is organized this way. It was an alternative to full demutualization. It gave them some of the financial flexibility of a stock company, but while still maintaining a mutual company structure. But you can still have participating policies because in that situation, the policyholders are effectively participating in the holding company profits, and that dictates their dividend. They're members of the holding company, and they get to participate in that. 
When Constellation okay. bought them, they bought the holding company. The, the life insurance company is already a stock company, but they can still declare dividends. So, so when Ohio National became a mutual holding company, that was their, that was actually when they demutualized. That was when the life insurance company demutualized. And what you have to do if you demutualize is you set up a closed block. And the closed block essentially still has participating dividends as if it were the whole company. So, so Prudential has a huge closed block. MetLife has a huge closed block. I believe Principal has a pretty significantly sized closed block. Uh, any company that did this has a closed block that they have to manage separately. Um, and then Ohio National and Constellation bought them. To your point, they no longer have participating dividends. Now they have uh, a formulaic dividend. And so they're the only company in the industry that I know of that has a has a formula that drives their dividend interest rate. So whatever 10-year treasuries are doing, whatever their earned rate is, they pump all that into a formula. And you know, that dictates the dividend. It's a totally weird, it's 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 entirely unique. And 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 it is, by the way, very adverse to the policyholder. I mean, there's no way to say that otherwise. There's you're gonna get lower dividends out of a high national than anybody else because of this formula. I'm over here listening and uh and cheesing and uh people are probably like, why is Dom cheesing? And I'm just like listening, I was like, it is insane the amount of information that this guy has inside of his head and what he knows. I don't have and a real job. Like, I don't have a real job, Dom. Yeah, you know, I just research this stuff it, all day. Literally, it's and it's so it's a very small segment of like what information that you actually provide. Like your newsletter like truly is unbelievable, the depth of it. Um so if anybody's watching this and you're just listening and you're like, dude, this guy Bobby just knows so much. Like his newsletter literally is the next level. Like I truly encourage people to go there. Um, in one of the, one of the articles that I actually read, uh, you mentioned this were this phrase that you just said. You said you can't be the cheapest and the best forever, right? <clears throat> and that was probably one of uh, how National's big downfalls. We're currently dealing with a company uh, in the space that is currently the, one of the the cheapest and the best, based off of the article that you wrote, which was Penn Mutual at this point in time. Yeah. And I'm just curious your thoughts. Like this has actually been like a really on my heart question that I've really wanted to like pick your brain about is do you, cause you, you even said in one of your other um, presentations the other day, you said it's up for debate if they can kind of, if this can last, like I, I generally want to hear your perspective on if you think it's possible for Penn Mutual to stay on this trajectory and actually do what they're doing and, you know, kind of maintain this or is something going to have to change or I just the, the whole concept around it right now. I'm like really curious, like Penn Mutual, their model and like how that's working and yeah. if it's going to you know work out. Um, I get a derivative of this question a lot, which is, is Penn Mutual the next Ohio National? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> so just to be clear, Penn Mutual does not have a toxic VA block laying around. In fact, I think they were, from what I know of their VA block, pretty responsible. They do have a bunch of guaranteed UL laying around. And so there is a smaller analogy to that, but I, I don't think it's anywhere near the scale that we saw with Ohio National. Um, although GUL is proving to be a problem, even, you know, Lincoln took a huge write down last year, but, but that was actually a gap write down. So there's all kinds of weird stuff there. So I'd say, let's just set that issue aside and just talk about their whole life. They are the cheapest and they do illustrate the best. And I'll say they, they have backed that up um, by having phenomenal investment returns and, you know, depending on how you look at it, probably some profits from other businesses coming in to support that. The problem with both of those things is the bigger you get, the harder it is to maintain that edge. And, you know, I think MassMutual is probably the, the preeminent example of a company that has managed to maintain that edge, even as it grew. I think New York Life has done a really good job of that with their huge annuity business. So right now, Penn Mutual's block is relatively small, which means it can illustrate really high dividends because as a 
you know, as a total line item for the company, their, their dividends are still pretty small. But as they grow, as they get bigger, I think that that's going to be harder to maintain, which is why their DIRs, in my view, why their DIRs kind of been coming down. And so my thought is that, you know, Penn Mutual is probably going to normalize at some point in the future. I, I would probably bet that in the, at some point in the future, that DIR is going to put them so that their performance is back in line with the other major mutual companies, if not, maybe even a little bit worse, potentially because of growing pains. But to your point, illustrations right now and and supported dividends right now, they are knocking it out of the park. I, nothing like that lasts. I mean, so if you go back over time into the 80s and the 90s and 2000s, there were periods of time where Northwestern had the best. There were periods of time where Guardian had the best. There were periods of time where MassMutual had the best. You know, I think back to 2013, 2014, when MassMutual had a 7.1% dividend interest rate. And as, as interest rates were plummeting because of other profits coming from other business lines, look, that's a clear benefit to policyholders. And it's great the policyholders got it. It is a mistake to take those performance differentials and assume that they're going to exist in the same way they exist today for forever. And so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say something nice about Northwestern Mutual here, right? Northwestern manages expenses extremely well. I mean, that is kind of their thing. They don't put as much into other business lines. They don't go as, go as far to the edge on their investment side of the house. So their products don't illustrate better. But if everybody had the same DIR, Northwestern would probably have the most efficient policies out there because their expense load is the lowest. So every company has got its own kind of unique mix of mortality, expenses, and interest. Penn Mutual just seems to be knocking out of the park on the interest side. And that's the one that comes and goes the most. And so I, I just, where I think, so I think Penn Mutual is a fine company. They're well capitalized and good ratings. They're growing great. There's a lot of things to like about that. But if you add the last bit on top, which is, oh, and by the way, they're going to out-illustrate and outperform everyone for the next 50 years, eh, bridge too far. Like, don't don't go that far. That is not, that is probably not going to happen. <laughs> Doesn't mean it won't be a good product. But to say it's going to outperform everybody because they illustrate better, I, I would not go that far. What would you say to structuring policies with PUAs and term writers that decrease over time? Like, when we look at it, it seems pretty obvious to us that it's like there's no downside for the consumer other than you could say a permanent death benefit. But from a cash value perspective, yeah. it seems like we're creating more flexibility, more cash value. And even with the dividend, you can make the argument where you're, if less in base creates more, less dependence on a 30 year from now de declared dividend. Yeah. Um, is there any downside to massively overfunding a whole life policy because you happen to get paid less doing that. And it's when we just look at the math, it's hard for us to justify not max funding um, using like front loads and stuff. So it's like, what what's your thoughts there? Because we've also been called out by many people by saying we're trying to undermine our colleagues and stuff by just pointing out the importance of overfunding because you could you could take a Penn Mutual policy or a Lafayette policy or One America policy and how you structure that could be a huge difference from the yeah. standpoint of performance in the short term and long term. Look, I own uh, I have whole life policies with my kids and I'm in the process of buying one right now and I I did exactly the design you did you know low base big term big PUA component. It's a great product gives me a ton of flexibility gives me great economics. I mean it's it's. It's awesome. Not every company is designed to do that. I mean, to your point, like there are some companies that facilitate that better than others. Um, there are some companies where all base contracts can be really attractive. I think about Mass Mutual's 10 pay. That's a killer accumulation product. It's less flexible, right? But it, it's tuned to do that and it does it really well. Um, New York Life, same, same deal, right? There's a, there, there are products that do certain things very well, but in terms of an overall package, yeah, I love that design. Here, here's the downside. 
The downside is when I think back to, you know, the 1990s when term blends were kind of just getting big and there were a lot of agents out there who would sell, they would term blend not to overfund, but to underfund. And so there's a legacy of products out there where they say, oh, you don't want to pay $25,000 for an all base whole life. That's fine. I'll do, you know, a, a minimal blend and or a minimum base and a maximum term blend. And now your premium isn't 25,000, it's $10,000. Yeah. That's now what have you done? You've put risk onto the client yeah. and sensitivity to the dividend. But to your point, if you're overfunding it, it's like the opposite is true. You're actually putting less weight on it. You're actually doing the right thing, which is packing as much money as possible into it. So I, I love that design. I think I think it's one of the knocks on, on whole life is, oh, whole life isn't flexible. Whole life is 95% as flexible as universal life. The only thing it, the only way, the only way it's different is it doesn't say flexible premium, right? Mm. That, but it is a flexible price, way more flexible than people think. And I think, uh, I think the way you're using it is maximizing that flexibility benefit to the advantage of the client. Kudos to you guys. Well, for doing I, well thank you. Appreciate that. I want to, I want to add on to the, the question that Caleb asked because currently in the space, uh, Infinite Banking, they they have a a seminar that they do once a year. It's like this think tank where they all come together and they talk about um, IBC and how it should be sold and the way they should structure their policies. And they're they're pretty big on designing it a specific way, which is essentially making the base and P way almost equal to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's not really like fully overfunding it in a way that potentially like we would design it. And so the guy, one of the people in the space, it was on stage, uh, and I listened to another podcast. So I kind of had this story. I wasn't like there by any means. Um, was on stage and talking about the dangers of making the base too small. And essentially, he was talking about um, with the rising interest rate environment, uh, essentially, that can cause the policy to mech to some degree or another with like the dividend going to PUAs and like causing a mech from a status. Is that possible? Is that just what they're just saying hearsay so that they can actually push the agenda more so? Or like, what is your thoughts around that? That's a that's a is it is it possible? Or there's some really weird stuff in the necessary premium test. I guess that's what he's talking about. It might be possible, but that's sort of like saying, hey, man, you should stay inside today because I hear an asteroid's coming to hit the hit the earth. <laughs> man, uh, you, you know, I just I'm not I'm not I'm not concerned about it. Uh, I, I would. And, and oh, and by the way, like carriers don't let you just mech contracts. Yeah. If you send a premium in and it mechs it, they send you back the amount and say, hey, did you mean to mech this? So I, I don't I mean, I don't I don't. Again, I mean, I have an eight-year-old son who's worried about all kinds of stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, it is possible. It is possible that someone breaks into our house tonight. It is not probable. No one in the neighborhood has been broken into in 20 years. I don't know. Like, You can worry about that if you want to, but I'm going to choose not to do that. And so with the mech, I, I think that's I think that's fun. So as as we try to land the plane on this amazing conversation, uh, we sometimes it's very easy to be critical on the insurance space. We live in it. So we're like seeing we're like hypercritical of like people, what they're trying to do. And and we have to take a step back and say, there's a lot of people that just hate life insurance. Like there's people that they're like, you, if you talk about an insurance product, like an annuity or whole life insurance, you're like the scum of the earth. Talk about TikTok being being a part of even any type of life insurance message does not win you any friends, especially in the financial space. So the way that I would like to end this, this conversation is if we take a step back. Can you talk to why when life insurance and or annuities, but we talked mainly about life insurance when it's set up and used properly, how it can be a game changer or the why behind it being an amazing asset that if you could like get someone to 
get this one concept about life insurance, like when set up and used properly, like what would you try to get across? Because again, the reason people use these gimmicks and illustrations is we just are horrible at communicating and, yeah. and it's their only way. And they justify it by they saying it's the only way to get people insured. So it's like, on one hand, I believe like our core mission here when it comes to life insurance is let's everyone that sh- is insurable should be insured. Right. But then it's like, how do we, how do we articulate a message that 30 years from now we're proud of instead of like hiding from? I, I hiding from is such a w- good way to put it. We have nothing to be ashamed of. Our products are fantastic. We don't need to make stuff up to sell life insurance. So I, I see people making the same argument. Like we just need to get people insured. So we'll tell them whatever we need to tell them. You know, that's not the case. The more people understand about our products, I, my view is the more people understand, the more they, they see the power of it and they see where it fits. Mm-hmm. So, I don't have the perfect pitch, right? Cause I'm not an insurance sales guy, but for me as a product person spending 15 years digging into these products and becoming more and more and more and more confident in the stability and the quality of what we have to offer. Um, you know, my, my view is really kind of twofold. Number one is there is no substitute for life insurance, period. If you want a death benefit to be paid when you die, there is no substitute. And so really, you know, this, this is a medicine right? And everybody's got the sickness because everybody's going to die. And so there is, there is no substitute. And I think that's part of what we downplay is just the incredibly unique power of this product in a financial plan as contingent capital, right? Every other piece of capital that most financial advisors touch is hard capital. They want to manage assets. They want to talk about real estate. They want to talk about this. This is contingent capital. This is capital that shows up when you need it the most. And where I think that's powerful is obviously income replacement on kind of the lower end of the market for families. I mean, you know, you can go to Life Happens and look at all the stories about people who die and life insurance. But we all know situations like this where life insurance. I mean, I know a guy whose whose wife died three or four years ago here in town and he had four kids and he lives off of his life insurance proceeds. And he had a great job, but he quit to parent his kids. And that would not have been possible without life insurance. I mean, that's an incredible. My mom died. Uh, five years ago and her life insurance went to go endow scholarships at a local college here. And so there's just incredible things that, 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 that life insurance does to leave a legacy and to protect a legacy that nothing else does. Then you get even get into like high end estate planning stuff. I mean, look, estate taxes occur when death happens. There's only one kind of asset that pays when a death happens and it's life insurance. So any sort of estate and business planning where death is a liability, and that's almost every business because of buy sell agreements, and it's almost every high net worth estate, like there is no substitute. So I think number one is just recognizing this is totally unique. There is no substitute and the protection element is incredibly powerful and should be in every financial plan, you know, period. Then the question becomes, okay, great. We've got a, you know, we've got a, 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 a cure and everybody's got the disease, but the general feel is, oh, well, yeah, but the cure is worse than the disease, right? These products are complicated. I don't understand how they work. Agents make too much money. So to me, I say, look, let's just talk about what this product is. Like, well, how does it actually work? You know, you pay a premium, policy charges come out, whatever's left over earns interest, and that's your cash value. Like, make it really simple. This isn't crazy complicated. Premium in, charges out, whatever's left over earns interest, that's cash value. That's how every single life insurance policy works. That's it. And so making it really, really simple, really straightforward. And I think once people understand, okay, that's how it works, then you can start talking about it as an asset class. How, what does an insurance company do when they take your money? Well, they go and invest it in a very diversified pool of pool of assets. And crucially, they post their capital against your policy. 
so that even if the assets lose value, even if the market value goes down, they're posting capital on your behalf so that your account value only goes up in a, in a, in a whole life context, right? So as an asset class, you're basically, you're getting the benefit of this broad diversified portfolio and you're getting protection and you're getting guaranteed growth because the carrier is posting capital. Now you gotta pay them to post the capital, right? So your returns may be a little bit lower or whatever, but you're getting stability in a way that you don't get in any other asset class. And that really is the power of permanent insurance. So I kind of, at the end of all my presentations, I, there's like a throwaway slide that I've realized is not a throwaway slide because people always kind of, kind of grab it and screenshot it and copy it. And it's three boxes. It says, you know, what always endures in life insurance? So forget the whole investment conversation and illustration conversation. What always endures? And what, so, so really what makes life insurance unique in a way that persists across all product types, across all time? And it's we, we do three things. We protect families. We preserve capital. We provide stability. That's it. And, and by the way, we do it in ways that are entirely unique in each one of these categories. And so, and so there is no substitute. That's, that's, that's the way I talk about it. I own a ton of this stuff. I mean, look, yeah, I spend a ton of money every year in life insurance and my wife has no idea really why she trusts me, you know, hopefully, but, but I put my money where my mouth is. I mean, to me, you know, I save, I, I have a qualified plan. I have 529s, everything left over goes into life insurance and everything that doesn't go into life insurance spills into my brokerage account because so it's, so, I mean, I put my money where my mouth is on it. The, and this is a whole nother episode. So I don't, I just, just, I guess, tell me if I'm on the right track. The, the, everyone knows like diversification is really key in a portfolio. And a lot of times people are like the 60, 40 bond, you know, concept. Knowing what you know about whole life insurance, if overfunded properly, is there any benefit that bonds give you in retirement from a diversification standpoint that whole life insurance that's funded properly can't? No, it's the other way around. Whole life gives you the benefit of diversification that you can't get on your own through bonds. And so I have this, the way I think about it is if you want to invest in fixed income, you've got to make all kinds of choices. You've got to make credit choices. You've got to make liquidity choices. You've got to make duration choices. You've got to make taxation choices. You've got to make complexity choices. It's actually really hard to invest in fixed income. Everyone's like, oh, just do a 60, 40 allocation. Well, great, what, what's that 40% going to look like? Because if you'd been invested in long bonds in 2020, 2022, you got crushed. If you invest in short bonds now and interest rates go down, you miss out. Like we, we, right now, we're having a commercial credit crisis. If you bought CMBSs, you're gonna you're about to get cleaned. And so there's there's just really tough decisions being made there. When you buy a whole life policy, you have the benefit of the insurance company making those decisions for you and posting their capital to make sure that no matter what happens in the underlying assets, you still get a positive cash value growth for the year. It's the best. So this is my joke at MetLife. I used to say compliance would never let me say it, but it's this is really the way to talk about it. Whole life structured properly over the long run gives you corporate bond returns with better than muni bond tax treatment and money market liquidity. It's the perfect fixed income asset class. So for me, I use it as my I use it as my fixed income allocation. I mean, knowing what I know, an overfunded whole life policy, and this and it came from a conversation with my financial advisor where he said, "Let me show you some bond funds," and I was like, "None of that is as good as what I can get in a whole life policy." So that's what I did. So yeah, I think there's a real plate. I I. I mean, look, I, I live it. I mean, that's what I put my money into. Yeah. And that's, that's the conversation. This will be another episode we can get into. That's where I wish people that talked about life insurance, they educated it with other assets. We talk about it as an and, because yeah. I think life insurance get, gets enhanced when you can have it as a part of other things versus it standing alone and saying, this is better than that, that, that. I totally so, agree. 
Um, and I and, and to your, I pair it with an equity allocation, right? So I, I I'll let my money manager manage my equities, and I do the fixed income and whole life, and they fit. The, and I have a VUL too, by the way, because yeah. I think there's a real play there. So I that's how I kind of stack it up. And I have long-term care, which I mean, don't forget, like hybrid long-term care is real. My wife and I both have hybrid long-term care policies. That's another great sort of angle on this. It's not just death benefits. It can also be other benefits that come along for the ride, long-term care being one. So I'm a big believer in that too. I love it. Bobby, thank you. How can people be a part of your newsletter, your community? And is is your newsletter just for advisors or can the public be a part of it as well? If you're not an advisor, you're not in the insurance world and you want to read my stuff, you know, God bless you. I don't know why you would, but, um, <laughs> but I do free subscriptions for people that aren't in the industry. So if you're just a normal person, uh, not a geek like us, then, uh, and then email me, we'll trade some emails and I'm happy to give you a link to get a free cool. subscription. Um, if you're in the industry, um, then yeah, just go to lifeproductreview.com. And look, I'll just say this and I, I, everybody says, gosh, your, your stuff is expensive. Okay. So I'll just say it. It's $99 a month or $9.95 a year. Um, tell you what, if they email you guys and you guys send them to me, I'll give you a hundred dollars off. So eight ninety five, And so that way y'all can kind of, you know, whatever, we'll take a hundred dollars off. Look, it's three to 4,000 words every week. Dom said it. You're not going to read this stuff anywhere else. It may not be worth it to you. It may not be that you want to read this stuff. That's totally fine. I'm going to do it regardless, but, um, I think it's worth a shot, right? I've got 500 subscribers. They love it. I'm amazed anyone reads it, but again, I think I think it fills a need in the industry that nobody else does, and so, you know, give give it a look. And like I said, I'll give you a hundred dollars off if you email Kayla with Dom first, and then I send you over to me. Bobby, thank you, Dom. I'll let you have the final words, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Yeah, we'll do two things. We'll put the we'll put the link below for the actual review, so people can click that super easily. Um, and if you want to sign up that way, great. And if you want to sign up using uh, getting the hundred dollars off, you can just email. Dom at betterwealth.com. Super simple. Um, but Bobby, I am so grateful. This is, um, for me, a very iconic moment in my insurance professional career. So I'm super grateful for it, man. Um, glad I got the opportunity to chop it up with you, as we always say here. And uh, if there's anything we can do, just let us know, man. Super grateful Thanks. for everything. You guys are awesome. I love what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.